0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are in the midst of our Christmas sermon series, which this year is entitled God with us. And we began this series last week as we looked at Matthew chapter one and Isaiah chapter seven and saw this nickname of Jesus, which is Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word translated into English means God with us. And Jesus is God with us and was a a sign. The supernatural way that Jesus came to us was a sign or a a reminder to us of the deliverance that God would bring. We saw that last Sunday. Now today we're going to continue this sermon series by looking at John chapter 1 in part 2 together. But before we get to John 1, I want to just ask you a question and that question is this if someone were to ask you to tell your story, where would you begin? Somebody were to walk up and ask you your story, where would you begin? What would you start with? Well, I I would hazard a guess that where you began your story would have to do with the person who is asking and the reason that they are asking. For instance, if, if I meet someone who is from Bartlesville and they say, hey, tell me your story. I'm, probably going to begin in Bartlesville because that's where I grew up and that's a point of connection that we have together. But if I'm talking to a group of students in our college life ministry or on the campus of the University of Oklahoma and they ask me to tell my story, I very well might begin with the time when I came to the University of Oklahoma as a student because it's something that we share in common. It answers the question that they're asking. And when I share in Starting Point, our newcomer's class here at Wildwood, When I share in Starting Point, I almost always will begin with my story of how I came to Wildwood. Why? Because that's something that we share in common. So the way that we answer, the way that we tell our story, is often rooted in the reason why someone is asking. Now, I share that with you today because today we're going to look at John's Gospel, and specifically, we're going to see where John begins the Christmas story. Now, when we think of Matthew's gospel that we saw last week, Matthew's gospel begins telling the story of Jesus with a a, a timeline, a genealogy, followed by an angelic declaration to Joseph to not divorce his betrothed, but to stay with her because the child within her womb was the Savior of the world. When we think of Luke's gospel... We think Luke begins his story of Christmas with the birth of John the Baptist, but also with the declaration to Mary by an angel that the child within her would be the Savior of the world, and on and on. But when we get to to John's gospel, where does John begin his account of Jesus' birth? Well, he begins way earlier than either of those other two authors, and why does John begin so early in his declarations of who Jesus is? Well, he he does that because he's going to argue that Jesus is God. Uh we, we see this as we look at John stating the purpose for his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. What John is saying is, he says, I could have said many things about Jesus, but I am very specific in the things I'm going to tell you about him because I want to make one point really clear. Out of all the things I could say, John says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I said, these things. These things were written for this purpose so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ who the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John tells us, he sat out in his gospel to to tell us that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is God himself and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name Now, when you tell the story of God, where do you begin? Well, you sure don't begin in Bethlehem, because there was a time when Bethlehem wasn't, but God was. And so John endeavors to tell the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus as God, and he sets it way, 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 way back, in a land before time. So let's take a look at his description of Jesus and the story that he tells us of Jesus in John chapter one, verses one through five and verses nine through 13. This is what he says. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so John begins his gospel. He begins his argument that Jesus is, in fact, God himself with these verses we've seen in John 1. I want us to understand these verses more, and so we're going to walk through them in two movements to see two things. The first thing we're going to see is this that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Something that comes quite clear looking at the first five verses of John's gospel. Now, where do we see that in these verses? Well, he begins and he he calls Jesus this title of word. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, what is John doing when he refers to Jesus as the word? This title of word would have had a couple of different understandings in the first century. Among Jewish people, they would have understood this as an expression of God specifically in creation. God's work in creation would have been associated with the word. But not just the Jewish world, even the even the non-Jewish world, the Roman world, the Greek world, would have had some understanding of this title word. They would have understood the title of word to be referring to the principles that hold the universe together. And so John begins his gospel and says that in the beginning, there was this word, the the one that holds all of the world together and the one that ultimately would create the world, that one was in existence before anything else came to be. Now, This title, Word, is a reference to Jesus. How do we know that? Well, we know that because John makes it clear all the way down in verse 14, in a a set of verses we're going to look at next Sunday, if you're back with us. But in John 1, 14, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who became flesh and dwelt among us? None other than Jesus Christ. And so the Word is a reference to Jesus, the one that holds all things together, the one who has the creative agency that brought all that is into being. He begins that way. But it's interesting that we see this idea of Jesus as the word referenced in other parts of Scripture, including Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, speaking here of the Old Testament times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. God's word today to us is through Jesus Christ, that we might understand who he really is. Jesus is the Word. But he goes on and tells us other things. He tells us that Jesus was in the beginning. It's interesting that John begins his gospel in the beginning. There's another book that in the Bible that begins with, in the beginning. Anybody know which book that is? It's the book of Genesis, right? The very first book in the Bible. I think in a not so subtle way, John is alluding to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, in the section of Genesis even, that talked about the creation of all things. In a a Jewish way of thinking, they would often refer to their books in the Old Testament. They would refer to their books by the first few words that are placed in that book. And so when John says in the beginning, John is saying, hey, in the time when Genesis came to be, the word who is Jesus already was. So it's not that Jesus became Someone or something thousands of years later when he was born in Bethlehem, but that he has always, always, always existed. Something that is shown to be clear here in these verses. Athanasius would say it poetically this way there never was when he was not. There never was when he was not. There's an amazing unity in the expression of God towards us that we find throughout the Testaments because it is God himself in both Testaments who is communicating to us his truth. Jesus was in the beginning. Well, if he was in the beginning, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that he is God. It tells us he is God. Who is the someone who is eternal, only God himself. Everything else has been created. God is the only one who is eternal. But we don't have to just come to that by inference. We can see it declared directly by John in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. Jesus is not just someone who was a carpenter's son who grew up a couple of thousand years ago, he was not just a good man, he was something far greater than all of those things. He's God himself. In our day and age, that truth and that reality has been obscured or forgotten, but we need to remember it, friends, and hang on to it. It is a blessed truth. Jesus is God himself. John begins his gospel declaring in unequivocal terms that Jesus is God. Now, he also says this though, not just that that Jesus was God, but he, he makes this cryptic statement in John 1. The word Jesus was also with God in the beginning. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Is Jesus God or was he with God? How do we reconcile those two statements? And the way that we reconcile them is to understand that our God, though he is one, is triune. He is Trinity, three in one. We sang it in the song, King of Kings, that we sang in the last song before I came up and prayed this morning. We're talking about a God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but is also unified in essence as one God. And what John is, is saying here is that though Jesus is God, he also was with God the Father and with God the Son is existing forever in eternity. That's his indication. We, we think of this in John 17, 5, when Jesus is praying to God the Father and he says, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Isn't that interesting? Before anything had been created, God was. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had community in their unity. Now that's a poem, right? But we, we see that expression in the presence of our Trinitarian God. And is that hard for us to understand? Absolutely. But but let me, let me just, just ask you, Why would we expect for a God who is infinitely greater than us to be able to be reduced to simple analogies? Wouldn't we expect a God who is truly holy and great to have aspects of himself that just go well beyond what we could ever grasp so that even in his very identity and his very nature, there would be things that would be beyond our comprehension. That's one of the things we see with our presentation that God reveals himself to us as a triune God. A number of years ago on the University of Oklahoma campus, we had this event where we had an interfaith dialogue and we invited students from various religious traditions and backgrounds to come together. And there were some Muslim students and some Hindu students and some Christian students who were together around tables and we had conversation. And when I was uh, at a table, there was a, a specific gentleman from a Muslim background. And when this topic came up, he said, I just, you know, this Trinity thing, said, it is just impossible for me to grasp. I said, well, tell me what you understand the Trinity to be. And he said, well, I believe the Trinity, you know, the, the thing that you talk about in Christianity, you know, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the mother. I'm like, well, wait a minute. He was talking about Mary. I said, there's some misunderstanding that you have. It's not father, son, mother. It's a triune God, father, son, and spirit one God presenting eternally in three persons. And he said, well, I just can't grasp that. How does three, one, it doesn't make logical sense to me. And I just remember in that moment, just just talking to this gentleman, I said, well, I am choosing to believe in the God who is, who has revealed himself to us, not the God that I think makes sense to me. Because the God who is, is always greater than the God I imagine." And the God who is has revealed himself to us in his very essence as existing in three persons Father, Son, and Spirit that had fellowship in eternity past before the world was created and who exists now and will exist forever and ever. There never was a time when they were not. Jesus is a part of that Trinity God, He was with God in the beginning. And it says that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is the agency by which God created all that there is. This is spoken of in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. In Genesis 1, in the creation account, it says, and God said, and there was. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be land, and there was land, and on and on and on. I think, friends, that's a little bit of of a veiled way of talking about the creation through Jesus. Jesus, the word of God, and God said, through the living word of God, all that is was created. That's who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about our creator, God. That's why it's appropriate when we see a beautiful sunset for us to say, thank you, Jesus. Why is it appropriate for us to say that? Because he's the one that created it. Why is it appropriate for us when we look at a night sky and we see the beautiful stars in the sky for us to say, thank you, Jesus, because he's the one that created it. He's the one who scattered those stars in the sky. Why is it when we look across the expanse of the ocean that we might say, thank you, Jesus, because he's the one that created the ocean. See, friends, Jesus is the creator of the universe. Passage goes on, tells us that Jesus is life. And Jesus was life, John says, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. Well, what does it it take for us to have human life? What's it take? Well, in a minimal form, it probably takes light and it takes air and it takes water and it takes food. You remove any of those things and you do not have conditions that are conducive for human life. Now, other things would be necessary for us to flourish, but just for us to exist takes at least these things. When we think of Jesus having life in him, just think of the way that Jesus described himself just in God's, in, in, in John's gospel. Jesus described himself as the light of the world in John chapter 8 verse 12. Jesus described himself in, in, in the, the, the Holy Spirit as the spirit as breath in John chapter 3 verse 8. Jesus says that from him flow flows living water in John chapter four, verse 10. And Jesus said that he is the bread of life in John chapter six, verse 35. See friends, in Jesus is life. And Jesus wasn't just talking about physical life, but he's actually talking about spiritual life. Think of some of what else Jesus said about life. In John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they, I came that you may have life and may have it abundantly. Jesus did not come to steal life from us. He came to give us true life, to help us know the life that we were created to live. Jesus came to deliver that to us. John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only does Jesus point us to the way that we were created to live, but he also is the way and the life that makes it possible for us to spend an eternity with God in heaven by forgiving our sins through his death on the cross. We might spend an eternity with God in heaven. He is our life. And not only that, but John chapter 17, verse 3, describes eternity. And he says, and this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is like? It's like this. It's like knowing God the Father, the only true God, and knowing Jesus Christ, whom has been sent. Friends, Jesus is life. In him is relationship with the God that created us. In him is the life we were created to live. In him is eternal provision from God. Jesus is our life. Not only that, but he's also the light of men. We live in a dark world, don't we? We live in a dark world. We live in a world where it's hard to know up from down, right from wrong at times. A world that wants to confuse us. Isaiah chapter nine says it this way, the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shone." We live in a world of darkness, but Jesus came to illuminate the darkness and help us know the way. Jesus is the light of men. In this light that is shining in the world, the darkness cannot overcome it. Now, this idea of overcome it could have one of two meanings. I think they both might actually be in in view here. One of the meanings of overcome was, just as it sounds, to overtake or to take it out. John, when he writes this, knows that Jesus was crucified on the cross, but on the third day, what did Jesus do? He rose again. The darkness of this world was not able to overcome, to overtake Jesus. It's possible that was what he had intended here. But it's also possible the word overcome can also mean to understand or to comprehend. And this would be to say that Jesus is the light that is lighting up the world, but because of the hardness of human hearts, so many have failed to understand who he is and what he has come to do. Maybe both meanings are intended here, but they certainly are both true. See, Jesus is God. He is God. Now, what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? Well, I want to share with you a a quote that maybe will help us begin to wrestle with this idea that Jesus is, is God. We see this quote from a man named Bruce Milne, and this is what he says He says, If Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, we are called to worship him without cessation, to obey him without hesitation, to love him without reservation and to serve him without interruption. If Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, we are called to worship him without cessation. You ever wonder why we gather together on Sunday mornings and sing song after song about Jesus? I mean, why not mix it up? Why not sing a song about one of you? I mean, I'm looking around the room. This is an amazing group. We could write some really cool songs about you. And if we wrote a song about you, we might sing it for you with your family on your birthday, in your home, with the microphone off. All right, we would do some of that. But we're not gonna gather week after week and sing songs about you. But we do week after week gather and sing songs about Jesus. And we do week after week, gather and read Jesus' word. And we do week after week, gather and and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Why do we have that reverence for Jesus? Why do we worship him without cessation? Well, the reason is because who he is, friends. If he's God, and he is, then it makes absolute sense for us to worship him as God again and again and again. If Jesus shares the nature of God, we're also called to obey him without hesitation. To obey him without hesitation. You know, there's some smart people in this room that could give a lot of advice about a lot of things. And when smart people give you advice about a lot of things, you have a choice. Either I'm going to do it or I'm not. But that's kind of the end of it, isn't it? We do it, we don't do it, we listen to it, we ignore it, eh. That's what happens when we think about the word that is given to us from each other. But what about the word from Jesus? Why do we obey him without hesitation? Why, when we see what he says in, in the word, are, are we called to obey it without hesitation, it's because Jesus isn't like you. Jesus is greater than you. He's God himself. So when Jesus gives us a command, we obey without hesitation because he is God. Why do we love him without reservation? Why do we love him without reservation? You know, in in this life, we have reservations with our love, don't we? Now, I realize in our families and if they're constructed well and people are serving God, there is a, 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 as close as we can come in this life to a love without hesitation with our families. But think back to when you were in high school or college and you're beginning a relationship with somebody. You didn't love them without reservation early. You, You held your heart back a little bit. Why? Because you weren't sure what they were going to do with it when you put it out there. Were they going to to love you back? Were they going to trample on you in some way? You, You loved with a little bit of reservation. That's the way it is in this world. Why is it that we can love Jesus without reservation? Because Jesus, friends, is always, always, always good. Always. We can always trust him we can love him without reservation knowing that he will always do what is right and good and just and and holy and in our best interest friends we can trust him we can trust him so we can love him without reservations because he is God and why do we serve him without interruption and i'm not just talking about this room here but but you know when we leave this place and we go to our homes. We, we love our, our spouses. We love our children. We love our roommates. We love our neighbors in Jesus' name. When we go to work, we, we preside over this little part of the world that God has given us some responsibility. We have dominion over this little corner and we do it to the glory of God. Why do we do that in Jesus' name? We do that because, because he's God. So it is absolutely appropriate for us to view all of life through the lens of following him and honoring him. Friends, is this beginning to make some sense? We haven't just arbitrarily picked someone in history and said, that person seems cool. Let's just talk about him. No, no, Jesus is God himself. He is God himself. And we need to remember that. John begins his gospel and makes that very clear. But after mentioning that Jesus is God, John continues and and makes a very interesting next point. And we see this in verses 9 to 13. And that is this, that there is an invitation for us to receive Jesus as God. For us to respond to the revelation of Jesus by receiving him, by believing in him, by trusting in him ourselves. Now, we see this begin to unfold in verse 9. In verse 9, it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is the true light, context lets us know that, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and it's important for us to think about it for a moment. See, in in the ancient world, in the world of the first century, Gods weren't sovereign over everything in the the common vernacular of their day. Gods were territorial. So one community had this God, the next community had the next God. They would have a temple, they'd have an idol. That was their worldview. That's the way they thought about it, especially outside of the nation of Israel. That's the way they thought about God. And in that understanding, the God of Let's think about it in our setting. You know, the God of Ada has no dominion or authority over someone who lives in Norman. Only the God of Norman is someone that we are responsible to. That was an ancient way of understanding. There was none that sat over it all. But what we see in John 1, 9 is that Jesus is the one who shines his light on all that all would be responsible to him. All would have to give an account for our lives to him. You know, and this is an important thing for us to remember because we live in a day that is not all that different from the first century. We just define our gods not by our cities, but just by our own imaginations. In a postmodern world, it's my God, it's your God, it's their God. And we can all have a God. And while I'm responsible to my little God and you're responsible to your little God, and in today's vernacular, no one is thinking about the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sits above and over all. That each and every one, regardless of where we're born, would have to give an account for our lives. But the biblical declaration is that there is a light that shines on all people that we all must be accountable to. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today, or you're not here today, but you exist as a human being in the world, you will one day give an account for your life to God himself. You will have to give an account to Jesus Christ. So what will we do? Well, sadly, many people reject him. Many people will reject him. Verses 10 and 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Rather than recognizing their creator, the people of the first century largely ignored or outright rejected Jesus. And when we think of the account of the wise men coming to visit Jesus in Bethlehem, Uh, we see a picture of a couple of different ways that people might reject Jesus as it's talked about in these verses. Remember, the wise men see a star in the sky and they come to Jerusalem and they talk to the scribes and the scholars and they say to the scribes and the scholars, we have seen the star of your king that he was born. Where is he at? And so they discuss amongst themselves and they say, well, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. They knew exactly where Jesus was to be born. So they had some information, but what did they do next? They did nothing. And they just passively ignored or treated Jesus with indifference. One of the ways that we reject Jesus and don't receive him is when we just deal with him in indifference. That may describe some of your hearts and attitudes towards Christ today. Just indifference. Yeah, he existed, maybe, whatever. But I'm just here because it's Christmas and this seems like the thing to do. All of us have been in that spot at some point. Or maybe it's an outright rejection. Herod wasn't indifferent when he got the news that the Messiah was born. What did Herod do? He mobilized the army to go and kill all of the babies under two to hopefully wipe out Jesus in the process. Some don't just have an indifference toward Jesus, but they actively reject him and are, are violent in that rejection in some way. I'm guessing that's probably not anyone in this room because you got up at 9.45 to go to church on a kind of a rainy day. But there are those who have an active rejection of Christ. There are those that have not received him. But if we have not received him yet, It's possible for us to do so. I love what he says in verse 12. After saying that many have not received him, in in John 1, 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to receive him? It means, John tells us, to believe in his name, to believe that he is God. God to believe that, that we are called to love him and to obey him and to, to serve him and to trust him with our eternity. To as many who as have believed in him, who have received him, John says he gives the right to become a child of God. Now that's a massive statement because a child is an heir, an heir of the promises of God, an heir of the blessings of God of God, including forgiveness and hope and eternal life, all of those things and many, many more are available to all who receive Jesus. So we become his child by receiving him. But he continues in verse 13 and tells us some interesting things. He says, we become a a, a child of God by a choice, but it's not a choice of our bloodline. It's, It's not a product of the family that we came from. It's not because we grew up in a Christian home that we become a child of God. No, it's by a different choice. And it's, it's not by the will of the flesh. It's not because we determine to do better or we determine to live more holy. And, and it's not because of the will of man. We, we don't become a child of God because our neighbor or our friend or our mom or our dad make a decision for us. No, we become a child of God by a choice, by a decision that came from God himself. See, God has chosen in his grace to reach out to us and to adopt us as his children. And he merely asks that we receive that gift and believe in his name. This, friends, is the gospel. And so, Let me ask you this question. Have you received Jesus as God? Have you believed in his name? For some of us in the room, we can answer an emphatic yes. There was a point in the past where this message became clear and we trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we began to follow him in obedience, leaving our life before and moving towards him because he is our God and he is our savior and he is our life. For many of us, that's our story. And we need to know that that happened because God was gracious to us and he reached out to us and gave us the faith to respond. And for others in the room though, you might be here and you might say, well, I have never done that. But this morning as I talk, you're beginning to realize, wow, I must give an account of my life to Jesus. And I do want to be a child of God and a recipient of all of those promises. What must I do? How can I respond? Well, know that that is not just something that this will of this man is exerting upon you or the person that invited you today or the family that you came from, but that is God himself that is pursuing you and inviting you to believe in the name of Jesus and be saved. And so whether this is something from long ago for us or something in in this moment that is new to you, I want to close by praying and in giving us all an opportunity to express again to God His faithfulness and goodness to us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just your love for us and your pursuit of us. Thank you that being God himself, you did not stay hidden in heaven, but you came to this earth to pursue us, to die on the cross for us, to save us and to show us and to provide for us the way of abundant life. Lord, may we be a people that hear this message and do not respond with indifference or rejection, but respond by receiving you, our God. And by believing in your name and by following you in faith, Lord Jesus, may you give us this this gift today of following you. Thank you for the journey that you have brought so many of us on already. And we pray now for those in the room that have not yet trusted in Christ, that this might be the moment that they do so. That they move from the amen of this prayer to a life of following and trusting and receiving you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.